0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Mimi Castile is Vibe Magazine's 2020 Wine Person of the Year. She's the vineyard own for Hopewell, a certified organic vineyard and a winery in Oregon that she farms regeneratively with animals and birds and all kinds of flora and fauna with no tilling and no fences. Please do yourself a favor and find Mimi's YouTube video about glyphosate. It's a masterclass on soil and vine microbiology and the devastating effect Roundup has on our food and wine. You can find it in a blog post I did at centraliswine.com slash glyphosate isn't bad, it's horrendous, with dashes separating those words. Also, check out any article or interview you can find online about Mimi. She's one of the truly brilliant scientific minds working at the cutting edge of regenerative viticulture and agriculture in general. She thinks deeply about so many of the issues facing the wine industry, agriculture, and society at large. And everything she talks about is full of big, important ideas that could shape the future of our world for the better. This interview is no different. We skip the backstory and dive right into the big ideas that are occupying Mimi's mind these days, involving experimenting with a self-sustaining community. We talk about the need for there to be more integration between rural and urban worlds, the ways that she farms and solve problems at Hopewell, the need to integrate and involve vineyard workers in all aspects of winemaking in the wine world, and so much more. As with anyone on the cutting edge, many of Mimi's ideas are controversial and even incendiary. I hope that you are incensed, intrigued, and inspired by this interview with one of the great minds of our time. The sponsor for today's episode is Centralis Wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S Wine. You can learn more about Centralis at centraliswine.com. And full disclosure, Centralis is my winery. I started Centralis because I noticed a disconnect between the values that many wine drinkers have and the kinds of wine they choose to drink. I wanted to give those of you who love wine an option to buy wine that reflects your values. So, Centralis is built on two pillars. The first is that Centralis wine will always be made with, at minimum, organically grown grapes. And the second is that we will always tell you every ingredient that was added during winemaking. Our first vintage will be released very soon. In fact, it may be available by the time you hear this, and it's pretty limited. So if you want to get some, please go to our website, centraliswine.com, and sign up for our wine list, or go ahead and buy wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S winecom We're also on Instagram, at centraliswine, and I can't wait to share our wines with you. Mimi, thanks so much for doing this. It's really great to talk to you. I mean, I have only known you through seeing videos and hearing podcasts and seeing articles about you and stuff like that and have admired you from afar greatly. And I just was really relishing a chance to get to talk to you. So thank you so much for doing this.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to meet you virtually and um, (laughs) listen to each other's voices.
0: <laughs> great yes and you know i i know that a lot of you know your background uh has been covered on a lot of other things that you've done out in the world so uh, you know what i tend to like to do anyway is just jump into big ideas and talk about things that fascinate you and are you're really geeking out on and just that you know sort of define who you are and your values and things like that if that's okay with you that's I mean, my I, favorite. I people- I'm,
1: I'm done talking about myself. Let's talk about big Woo-hoo! ideas. Yeah. <laughs>
0: oh, awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All the best people are done talking about themselves, I think. <laughs> well, who um, cares
1: anyway? God. <laughs> <It's exhausting. laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I let's, let's talk about cool stuff.
0: Cool. I, and I mean, I, I'm tempted to just say, you know, in since you have had a fair bit of uh, publicity what do you wish you'd been asked that you haven't been asked yet like what are some of the questions that you'd like to dig into that you haven't gotten an opportunity i guess you can think about that if you yeah want no to it's before. a great
1: it's a great question i love it when people um sort of turn the turn the question on the on the person being questioned and i think um for me what i what i really want because people are so fascinated by wine they they really love you know to talk about how viticulture and the way that we manage vineyards is relevant to be it climate change or ecological resilience or any of those things but i mean i usually have tried to just use that as a wedge of you know opening the door a little bit wider and talking about how we think about landscape level management and what the, what the real, what the real problem is in front of us right now, which is a, it's a landscape level problem. And there's never been a better moment than right now to engage people about not just where their food comes from, but what happens with supply chains that are global and why resilient ecosystems beget resilient autonomous supply chains. It's not to say that the global economy needs to disappear. We could debate that another time. But for me, sure. you know, if we were to really look at our biggest opportunity right now it's to change the way we do agriculture and make it regionally appropriate make it scale appropriate and at the same time try to use that step change that you know kind of step change shift to also address the systemic problems that we have with racial inequality and social justice and all of the other all of the other things that are are totally linked to the way that we've viewed our relationship with land in this country, and frankly around the world, but it's largely driven by this sort of Western manifest destiny, conquering territory, you know, the way that we've chiseled up the landscape through ownership boundaries. Um, I think that's for me, that's really that's where the big. The big bucks are right now for you know opportunity Mm. wise.
0: It's a it's a huge problem to tackle because it's part of our I guess embedded psychology like our inculcated everything right like it's it's part of the fabric of just the way that we view the world as Americans or Westerners I guess. Do you think it's I mean, do you think changing that is possible? (laughs) (laughs) I need to ask. I know. I I think you must
1: must ask because it's the obvious question. And yes, I do believe it's possible. I don't think that these things happen um, abruptly or overnight unless there's a catastrophe, which I think, you know, all of us who care about these issues, really want to avoid catastrophe and so we have to look at it in something you know what are the what would be the step changes that would need to happen to change to change that mindset because I think you know if you just look at the sort of psychology of our relationship with land it's not it's not truly embedded we're not you know like in our history it is embedded in the last, you know, several hundred or so years, but we're not so far removed from a much more benign way of looking at stewardship and landscape and the sort of health permanence and beauty commitment. And so I think that to your question, the way, if if it's possible, it's possible through example. And so my, little um a thought experiment right now it's not little at all but would be to take a region i'm just going i'm going deep already man so stop me if you want to Do. change directions but not
0: not a, okay but i love <laughs> it go for it <laughs> take a region would,
1: you would take a region that is isolated enough already that um let's say the community already has a fairly libertarian spirit. And so the idea of being in autonomous food and fiber shed would not, would not be so, offensive to them to be you know to be autonomous and and regionally stable and where there are some already embedded regenerative farmers who are working and probably really struggling if we're all being honest about what it takes to work this way right now that those people um maybe look like the outliers in those communities but I know of specific examples just here in Oregon where those communities are, are small enough that they there's a lot of trust and everyone knows each other. And what's interesting is in, in sort of looking at several different places, just because this is how I do thought experiments, I'm like, does this place actually exist? And you look around and you start thinking about how you would do it. Because you couldn't do it in the Willamette Valley. You certainly couldn't do it in almost any place in California because those places are so beholden to the like immediately being able to get what you want from Amazon two hours later. But in a place like just to take a a, a an example that I've been fixated on, the sort of Wallawa basin. And the farmers there are Did all, you say Walla?
0: Wallawa Yeah,
1: no, Wallawa. So the the Wallawas are a, a mountain range here in Oregon, northeastern Oregon. Beautiful. It's like one of my favorite places to backpack. And um uh like the um the agriculture there is largely you know small grains grass seed ranching um and the farmers all know each other even though they're not all practicing the same sort of philosophical type of agriculture they all know each other and there's a lot of trust and a lot of communication already and the communi- the community itself is so kind of codependent because they get a lot of snow and they're very far away from a lot of infrastructure and so the schools are very close the there's a, um, a local uh, health clinic that actually has a holistic medicine arm attached to it so you you look at a place like that and you say to yourself you know if you could get that community to buy into let's say a 70 30 or an 80 20 you know we're gonna produce, of the food and fiber in this watershed for this watershed. And in so doing, we're committed to also improving the water holding capacity and the water filtration. Because a lot of these communities that I've looked at um, just in in this thought experiment, the populations have similar health problems. And Mm. I think that right now, more than ever, especially during COVID, People are starting to look at the quality of their lives before this happened and and are acknowledging that the way we lived before is not the way we're going to live in the future. And yet we have a tremendous power to affect what that looks like right now because everybody's at home. You know, most people aren't doing what they usually do. And so I think there's never been a better time to create a regional model that would actually work and look at the net benefits back to that community and the net benefits back to that ecosystem, and then use that as, a, as an example for designing regional systems that actually are autonomous food and fiber sheds. It's not to say you can't be 20 or 30% connected to those things that we absolutely have to live you know we need them to survive (laughs) but it would largely be more informational and sort of intellectually based trade at that point but the things that the tactile things that you need the food the fiber the water all coming from within and if you think about that from even just a food security national security regional security I think that appeals on many levels. I realize that it also sounds a little bit like communism, but I think that there are <laughs> ways there are ways of talking about this that would appeal even to sort of deep populist and deep libertarian views.
0: Yeah, and and when you mean communism, I I I, I think you also are referencing more like the 60s, 70s communism, not necessarily the Russian Soviet Union communism.
1: Precisely. I mean, more like communal, yeah, communal communism, if you will, where, you know, there is a, there's a a buy-in at the community level that we all, you know, the rising tide and whatever phrase you want to use, but that as a community, we're stronger when, we work for our community then when we work for things and people that we don't know or see and don't even know that they exist. You know, we send products, we send agricultural products that take real blood, sweat, and tears all over this globe. And so much of that is wasted. And so much of that creates huge waste from an energy perspective. And especially here, especially now, we know we don't have to do this. (laughs)
0: This way. Right. I, You know, I'm from Pennsylvania, a small valley in, in the mm. south central part of Pennsylvania, and I imagine mm-hmm. there are places there. I mean, there are places there that I wish would be open to that because they're, they are, I mean, they're, you know, they're old Mennonite and Amish communities yeah. that are very insular, you know, and, and basically have been self-sustaining for years and years, you know, and and then the communities that have sort of grown up, the more you know, modern, quote unquote, mainstream communities that have grown up around in the same area. But there are a lot of little pockets all through Appalachia, for sure, where, you know, people are isolated. And uh, yeah, that's, I, I'm fascinated by that as well. That's, um, it I was just listening to something that Steve Matheson did with the Lodi uh, farmers back in the day when they were trying to increase their sort of market profile. And, you know, he described them as real dyed in the wool uh, overalls wearing farmers who all just decided that sustainability was the way to go. And he sort of helped create a blueprint and sat down with each of them. And of course everyone had autonomy, but they had that shared, Goal and shared mission, and so they were able to like move the needle in that direction. It was kind of an inspiring thing. Like, I, you know, it was something that he was hired to do as a consultant. I just happened upon it by listening to a, a podcast with him. But was that um, the
1: was that the uh, the beginning of the Lodi rules? Is that where that all kind of
0: yes started? yeah uh-huh. exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: very cool. Which he story. said
0: he used. Yeah, he said he used like a a Wisconsin potato. <laughs> growers handbook as like a model for what he used but you know it, it hadn't been done with wine before so it's kind of sort of you know a, a inaugural thing he sort of broke ground on that idea and then but yeah i don't know maybe it'd be worth looking back into wisconsin <laughs> potato growers <laughs> before that to see what they were up to there might be some interesting history there i love the thought experience are, are, are you doing anything to see about making it happen? I'm sure you're plenty busy as it is without taking on massive regional projects.
1: Well, and actually, I mean, I I totally am. It's what I think, you know, wine and viticulture aside, the most important work that needs to be done right now is cracking these bigger questions and really breaking down the barriers to this t- this way of farming becoming conventional if we're going to if we are going to change the way the landscape functions and the way our you know our children and future generations experience this place more positively rather than more negatively i think that right now that is the most important work that i can do and so i'm very actually i'm very focused on that and i don't know If it, if that, you know, designing that model and trying to make it happen is the, is the way that it will, you know, kind of unfold. But I do know that that is what is most important for me to be working on right now. And it comes down to, you know, we haven't, we haven't even figured out what regenerative really means and needs and looks like in different regions and for different crops and, you know how integrated uh, does a farm need to be, and how much habitat um, needs to be rebuilt? You know, so that the amount of land that's actually under, um, I guess, what you would call intensive production can shrink, because we know. I mean, at least I've learned this in in every system that I've been a part of. When you start repairing things at the 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 very earliest trophic level, so from the soil level up you can do so much more with less footprint and so you can kind of give back to nature these pieces that we have farmed fence post to fence post just because we think you know more more acres equal more dollars and that we've really reached the law of diminishing returns on that I think we can't um, we can't squeeze more blood out of a turnip without replenishing the bank that we've exhausted so
0: I mean I don't
1: I don't exactly know how I'm going to move forward but I'm talking to a lot of farmers in a lot of different regions trying to get get a sense of where are the where are the critical masses of people who are working regeneratively and really trying to figure that out in their systems and how connected are they to the other people in their community and how does this become a vector for you know rapid change, where the incentives that currently are keeping us in a conventional farming model and keeping regenerative people i mean this is this is something that I think you probably think about a lot too, but if you farm if you farm regeneratively and you have an integrated farm with multiple systems and animals involved in everything I mean that is a massive commitment that you make both financially emotionally and physically and then Uh say you make wine on top of that and you need to brand that wine accordingly so that you can this is how I look at it so that that wine hopefully being an extraordinary example can start a conversation that you want to have with people about where their food comes from. But in the meantime, there's that sort of 80% of your creative mental energy that needs to be spent on branding, which is supposed to attract the attention of maybe, you know, 2% if I'm being generous of the population that is actually spending money that way. But the people we need to communicate with are the 98 percent and so right now all of our mental energy and focus is trying to get the dollars of those people who are wealthy enough to pay for food and wine that's grown regeneratively whereas if this is ever going to be for the people by the people it needs to be accessible to them and so it has to be the conventional model it's it should not be the luxury model because if only the super wealthy can afford to farm regeneratively this never this never okay. goes anywhere and that's okay. why i mean i think those small like those of us who are really struggling to make it who you know kind of look at our budgets especially in a year like this and say uh, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to I don't know how we're going to do this for one more year, much less how I'm going to devote, you know, another 60% of my time to developing a regional model for change, but this is what we could do right now. I mean, I really do I'm more hopeful than I'm cynical because I think just from every perspective we're starting to see this the systemic sort of fallout of the way we use land.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that, uh, do you think that at some, on a practical level, or maybe like a, I don't know how to put this. It's not a practical thing necessarily because there's logistical hurdles involved, but getting some of the brain power and youth uh, out of the urban centers and into the countryside is, is something that has to happen. To make this happen, absolutely. Or do you think,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was. I mean, I, yeah. I, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, please.
1: No, I want you to finish your thought because I, I, it sounded like it was going in a really good direction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just. It, it's one of those things where you start. I guess when when I hear criticisms of the unsustainability of you know like of a regenerative farming practice, it's usually because they. You know the person is thinking about applying it to conventional monoculture, which is impossible. Of course, it's mm-hmm. going to fail. you know, mm-hmm. And you know which was it's designed for one person in a tractor to do a hundred acres, you know and and that's not the kind of agriculture that we're talking about. We're talking about many hands, sharing the labor as well as sharing the 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 economic benefits, the health benefits, all everything that spills out of that. And it's a whole different way way of looking at agriculture. And so yeah, go on. That's the it's I it was just that's that's where I was going. <laughs> right,
1: I really think there's a beautiful I mean, so the WPA post World War II, the sort of rebuilding of the infrastructure or the building of the infrastructure of America. I mean, there was definitely um a lot of um a lot of Good was done with that, but if you but also a lot of harm, I mean, if you think about the damming of the rivers, et cetera, et cetera. But
0: mm.
1: where we could do that, but to a different end now, I mean, the the reinvestment, the sort of post you know, post- apocalypse reinvestment <laughs> of in American ingenuity in redesigning landscapes that are, both functional and beautiful and healthy. And then taking, you know, where we need to have urban density, I I certainly believe that that's true. I mean, I don't want to just like send everybody out onto the countryside and have a, a house every five feet. I think urban density is critical and designing beautiful urban centers as well and centers for urban agriculture could be part of this. But getting people from very... I guess what I would say bleak urban centers out into not just farmland, but into nature and really educating the the generation right now that is going to, that is getting lost in this, in this really strange moment that we're having, that there would be no better education right now than to put those people outside and say, this is what a healthy life looks like where you are surrounded by nature and you do your work so that you can feed yourself and feed your community and rebuild the the sort of wild nature that has been lost because of agriculture at the same time and see how those things how those systems the the working lands and the natural systems can knit themselves together so that real real ecological resist resilience can be achieved where you reconnect broken networks of communication and gas exchange and all of the things that we've interrupted so so perfectly <laughs> um and do that
0: <laughs> as a
1: learning as a learning process because we don't learn that we don't we're not teaching that and you know we teach that farms are farms and forests are forests and we need to start re-educating ourselves about function and why things that are functioning actually help us function better (laughs) that you know the deterioration of our landscape is you know step stepwise, the same as the deterioration in our mental and physical health and our national security and all of the things that are going wrong right now.
0: And, and, and potentially, again, going back to that, bringing people into new environments, I think would help heal some of the political divide that we have in this country as well. I, I mean, every time I leave LA, I come back and say, you know, people need to get out of LA. Like you need to go see the rest of the country because it ain't like this, you know, it is very much different from what we're used to in Los Angeles and not in a bad way. It's different. And that's it. It's got its own honor. It's got its own, you know, it's just as viable, just as virtuous. It's just different and and I think the more people are exposed to that like the more humanizing it it, the more humanizing of an effect it has um and I I think it's really important at this point as well uh, to get some of these things done to have that those bridges built basically yeah
1: I think that's such an such an important point that you make because the the code of I guess it's not just etiquette. It's like basic humanity. Um, it, it shouldn't be regional. (laughs) It shouldn't be regionally specific. Like we shouldn't have LA manners and New York manners and country manners. I think the sort of the way that we silo ourselves to whatever we're used to, um, is that, you know, it's rooted in, fear and it's rooted in you know how we just want to be comfortable all the time and all of these problems that we face right now are going to require us to be uncomfortable and we need to just get really good I mean we need to practice that I think practice being uncomfortable practice being um, embarrassed and humble and beginner (laughs) Um, that that's that's the mentality I think that we need to lead with not, not this like I have all the answers and I know the destination and I will lead us forth into victory. Um, But, (laughs) you know, we're, we're beginning and we will always be beginning and we will never have the answers, but we can adhere to a common code of decency and humanity that isn't just for people, it's for the land as well. And I think, I think you're absolutely spot on to make that point. I mean, we, we do really silo ourselves.
0: And you're saying it's, it's okay to live an uncurated real life.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the one I want to, I, I just, you know, right. I don't care. I don't care what it looks like on Instagram because it's not, <laughs> it, it's not pretty, Um, but it's, but it's real and it's honest and it and it cares about, you know, trying to be humble and you know really trying to find solutions for for everyone, not just for the people who can afford it.
0: Yeah. So that's some some macro stuff for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I let me just ask a different question for you um when you let's just go real specific mm. how do you solve problems on the farm at, at hopewell like mm. when you encounter something in the vines or just in, in general it's you know but you know vines would be great keep it you know wine oriented what do you how do you respond
1: great question uh kind of depends on what it is but i think you know to i i think i understand what you're what you're getting at here when when you go from because the way that we the way that we did this was you know we took something that was a christmas tree farm and had no organic matter and then we decided to just you know go kind of whole hog into regenerative practices whatever that meant and so it is a it has been a very iterative process and there have been really scary moments along the way and just for example i mean if you're you know if you don't have irrigation which we we do not um we've had a lot of drought years i mean a lot of like really hot some of our hottest driest years during this period and there have been real you know where say you know, I watched our pruning weights go down for three years in a row. Um, And that was even with sort of really managing the crop so that it wasn't taking too much out of the vines and trying to, you know, compost well and all that kind of thing. But when, you know, when you aren't using foliar nutrients and things like that, you're sort of limited in what you can do. And so my, my approach has always been to try to, there's always a moment of like, holy shit what have i done and you know the fear that comes with that but you know when you get trapped in that emotion you're just going to whatever action you take is going to be just a reflection of that emotion and not a real not a real solution i guess and i always try to remember that hopewell the vineyard the site the project the wines etc it's all it's all about a mission, which is to try to learn so that others can have the courage to learn. And so staying committed to certain practices and seeing them through, even when it seems very scary. So just for example, in that case of the pruning weights going down and down, I went and started, you know, digging holes and measuring the organic matter and the sort of coming down, the decline in our pruning weights was very much in line, you know, sort of at opposite curves with the increase in our organic matter. And so we were building organic matter while losing pruning weights. And Mm. that, that seemed like a bit of a conundrum. But once I started really thinking about it, you can build organic matter by, you know, stopping tillage by adding compost by composting in place and having diverse cover crops and all of those things but those new exchange sites that are created in that organic matter and the nutrients that are bound to those exchange sites can't be released until your microbiology catches up right so you have right. to you have to overcome certain thresholds when you're transitioning a system or when you're trying to rebuild back to a baseline level, and just by taking a breath and saying, "Look, our you know our microbiology is on, on a good trend, and our organic matter is certainly on a good trend," I trust that these vines aren't gonna crap. I mean, they weren't. It's not like they were dying in place they were certainly getting a little bit weaker and weaker and weaker and so I just decided to take a break and pause and give it one more year and see how we did the following year and sure enough the following year we had not just a return of vigor but a return of you know a higher pruning weight and that that trend consistently increased over the next several years and so I think remembering that this is not this is not a human timescale that we're dealing with. And so the changes that we want to see are attached to our, our human concept of time and our agricultural concept of time and churning out, you know, in real time, what's probably inappropriate for certain states of a system. So just reminding myself of the mission and of the time and trusting that, these repair mechanisms that are built into just what drives life itself, they don't, they don't care what we're doing. They're going to, they're going to keep trying to repair a system, even when we're doing really bad things. And when we're trying to do less bad things or when we stop doing bad things, those things are ongoing. You can't always see them and you don't always know how quickly they're working, but so it takes a certain level of faith and a certain level of trust. But then if you have the patience, the reward is almost always right around the bend. And I have other examples of that, but I think that's probably the best one because I I hear all the time from people, you know, we tried to go no till, but in year three, we the vineyard was just crashing. Or you could just tell that the vines were getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And there's an assumption that that's, that's a trend that can't be, that's never going to never gonna stop um, and those are the those are the places where we try to push the hardest where you, you just like if we can't learn this way if we won't experiment in this way then nobody will
0: and knowing what I've heard you say in terms of your ideas and the and the ideas that you're you're pushing for I always have the sense of you as having a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde conundrum in <laughs> just on the farm there because I feel like the one side of you would rather that it was just a wild landscape and that these vines were just sort of, you know, trellised over pine trees and you know just a forest that you went out and gathered, you know, just wild grapes. And that was how you made your wine. If you were going to make wine at all from it um, versus the other side, which is you have a commercial vineyard, there are demands for that. You There's a, there's a need to show that it's possible to do that, I think, is part of what you're trying to do. And and yet that takes you in this other direction that is less, you know, that is tied to conventional viticulture, agriculture in in many ways. Do you find that push and pull? I, am I making that up or is that Oh something no, that you I wrestle mean, with?
1: No, you're you're totally you've totally nailed me. Um, a <laughs> uh, it, it is it's a it is a constant battle and i think that one of the one of the struggles that i have is just knowing i just know that viticulture especially with vitis vinifera you know this european yeah. cultivar that we've kept you know it's been clonally reproduced right. for so many so many hundreds of years and we are so attached to it and i mean me included that there was a, it was almost like if if you, if your goal is to make change, then you have to work within the systems that need to be changed. And, or at least that, that's how I've looked at it heretofore. Because I think, I think that to just put vines in a forest, it will get people's attention, but getting people to move needs to seem relevant to them. It needs to seem Mm -hmm. like something other than just a, a farce, I guess. And while I do think that, you know, sort of, um, agroforestry with viticulture is certainly possible, um, and not just possible, it may well be the future, especially if we want to get serious about disease control and breaking up monocultures, um, But design, design and function are also both really important to me. And I think that just being random is, um, I mean, it's interesting, like it is really interesting. And I think it's fun and captivating and and can certainly capture people's imaginations. But if you want to, if you want to set things up in a way where you can prove that something works, then you have to. I think you have to look at the model that people are currently working in and then flip it over and say, yes, we can grow Vitus vinifera in this system without irrigation, without cultivation, and make extraordinary wines without sacrificing the integrity of this landscape. Um, and I don't think it can be done everywhere in the world. I mean, I do, I do think that there are limits. <laughs> there are... Right empirical limits in some systems that just have not been acknowledged, I guess. But if we're talking about, you know, this sort of temperate regions where wine is largely grown, most of those systems should be able to do it without, you know, without these massive disturbance patterns that were so tied to, um, it it can't be done overnight and i think it's probably best not done cold turkey but there are ways there are ways to transition and that's the that's the handholding that needs to happen if we are going to convert the the masses to better practices and we have to meet them where they are
0: well and what i hear you saying when you say the masses is is, is i think a a bit of another a uh, split that you have which is i think you a big part of your mission is to talk to farmers and to set an example for farmers as as much as consumers, if not more than consumers. Is that fair to say?
1: That is fair. I mean, I think the the education has to happen on both sides and consumers will definitely help drive the change. But with farmers, I mean, the, the, the real, the real problem is that farmers have not, had the support of their communities for more than a hundred years. I mean, it's, it's right. really, um, it's easy to divide things up politically and, you know, sort of blame the world's ills on, on farmers who drive, you know, one tractor over thousands and thousands of miles, but the, they didn't get there because they, they thought it was a good idea. You know I mean? This was driven right. by an, a, a totally almost random (laughs) industry that came, you know, came out of a war model, basically. A, a, A moment in history that changed everything, but especially the way that we work the land. And farmers will always, I think, rise to the occasion when they're supported by their communities. Because if you think about what it means to be a farmer these days, you have to, you have one shot a year to pay the bank and you're either going to make it or you're not going to. And Mm -hmm. most people don't have a lot of tolerance for risk. And they're certainly not being, you know, like their, their neighbor down the road, who's a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher isn't stopping by and saying, you know, Hey, can I grab 16 bales from you this week? Because, you know, I've got a couple of cows that, you know, we feed and slaughter every year. That's all, that's all a thing of the past. The only people who have visited farmers in the last hundred years are the chemical sales reps and the, and the extension agents. And that, mo- that model again is, is industrially supported and hasn't shifted very quickly to look at alternative ways of farming. I mean, farms have just gotten bigger and bigger and farther and farther apart known owned by fewer and fewer people. So, I mean, I think there's no part of me that would meet a farmer no matter what the sort of political side of the spectrum that they come from. I have never met one who sits down every night at the table and says, I just want to, I just want to do something bad to the land tomorrow. (laughs) You know, I mean, they all care about what, you know, they're there. Like you don't do this because, um, because it's making you a lot of money or, or a, a really easy life for you. You do it because, you know, usually the land means something to you, the place means something to you, the crop means something to you, what it means to your family, all of those things. And so I think that there's those, those farmers are the solution. And they just need to be spoken to like the pillars of the community that they that they really are. So yeah, I mean, I I, I do sort of go back and forth with, with my thinking about how are we going to, it's a chicken and an egg thing. We need people on the consumer end too, educating them about, you know, why it really does matter to not just look at the label and say, Oh, it says grass fed, like figure out what that means on that label. Find out where that cooperative really buys from find out, you know, if it's, if it's organically grown or, how it's organically grown and really if you can find a way to know and this is much easier obviously in california than it is in most places in the world but
0: yeah
1: locating and thanking even if you can't buy their stuff but thanking the farmers that work around you for you know the things that they do that positively and even frankly negative but just acknowledging that they're there (laughs) i mean i think it's a it's a population that feels invisible and if if not mm-hmm. invisible then just straight up maligned
0: right I, I i had a question here asking you about how you engage with farmers and you know especially vineyard managers those kind of farmers when there's disagreement when they don't see organic as a, a viable solution or you know better than organic as a viable solution but I, I I imagine it's a little easier for you than it is for some people because you're coming from such an empathic place really and even more than empathic uh, really you know at a place of admiration
1: totally i mean i I really do my you know my guts have been spilled all over the ground in in the sort of heartache and and struggle that everybody goes through as a farmer the the times that things really go south and there's nowhere, I mean, there's nowhere to turn, you know? I mean, when, when nature does her take, (laughs) there's, (laughs) there's nobody, there's really nobody to turn to except for each other. And I think that building community, I mean, even when there's disagreement, because I think it's a really, it is a really worthwhile thing to actually get into a conversation with somebody who who really disagrees with you but is willing to have a conversation about it because you can talk I mean you can bring things up with one another that are relevant and thought provoking and maybe plant seeds or just create trust just building trust i think is such a it's such a huge part of changing hearts that people often overlook because i mean look you can you can hand somebody a spray program and say, you know, do this if you want to be organic. It's not the same as saying, "Look, hey, this isn't going to be easy. I'm not going to promise you overnight success. I would never say that to another farmer, especially, but okay. I'm your I'm your I'm your 3am phone call. I mean, I will pick up the phone and I will come and look at your farm with you in that moment. And I will try to troubleshoot this with you. Even if you're not organic, you know, like we all, the land, I don't, I mean, I have really, you've probably heard me say this cause I say it all the time, but the concept of ownership, I think is really, it's problematic when it comes to the land. Like, <laughs> my neighbor's land, my neighbor's land almost means more to me than my land because of the way it's being farmed right now. You know, it it's so <laughs> it's such a it's so hard and so like the investment that I feel in the lands under other people's yeah. care is every bit as much as I feel in my own and I think that that's really meaningful to people when when you can stand with them in their place and say, "Oh boy, I I wasn't even thinking about this challenge that you're facing. Let me let me chew on that for a minute. Let me think about this from, you know, just a different perspective. I mean, if I can come up with any idea, then I'll send you I'll send you 500 thoughts um and we'll see if any of them stick, but that building of trust between the camps, if you will, or just be, it, between individual farmers. It's like I'm not here to judge you. I, you know, there's no part of me that feels any judgment of anybody who's brave enough to farm. But I, I definitely feel like I want to help, you know, I want to see mm-hmm. people be healthy. I want to see people work less and feel better about the lives they're leading. And we've just, we've come a, a long ways away from that, I think.
0: Yeah, it's, i i that same thing i mean i'm and i don't even have farms within a stone's throw of me i but i you know when i visit vineyards i was just up in the high desert at a vineyard two days ago and i was just like it, everything i could do because they're they're farming conventionally and i was just like if you know I'd, i i mean i i just was like you know we buy grapes commercially and if you farmed organically we would buy from you like i was doing everything i could to just like Up to the point of being like, I will come and do the viticulture myself for you for free, like just to see Mm -hmm. that that vineyard, which you know is a lovely vineyard, maybe in a in a crazy place. But it's anytime I see something like that, it's just I wanna, I want it to be a healthier place. I want to, you know, I want to help make it more, you know, make it a a a great place. I definitely, I feel like with your ownership thing, maybe you were just born in the wrong, you know, era a few a few years too late totally (laughs) i feel that too um let me so you brought up uh, you touched on the idea of vinifera and 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 you know i mean if you had your choice would you be growing something else would you be finding native wild grapes and trying to you know hybridize or like breed those into something that would taste good when you made it into wine, what would you be doing if you, if you weren't trying to show that you could do what you're doing the way you're doing it and you just had a blank slate and could do whatever you want?
1: Well, I I mean, I, so we have, yeah, totally. Uh, We have, um, you know, we have seedlings every year that we, you know, I sort of, dig up and then put in the put in the forest and you know just like you said <laughs> let them grow up trees
0: yeah, I knew um, it I knew it yeah
1: <laughs> just because it, the curi- the curious part of me um I mean our uh, tastes are our tastes are what they are and I would be the last one to say that I have found the hybrid version that I feel confident would you know, kind of outseat, I guess, or at least give some breathing room to Vitis vinifera because, you know, I mean, right. I think that a lot of the problems that we have are due to monoculture. It's not because vitus vinifera is so bad, but, you know, a, you know, we've been clonally selecting and clonally breeding based on certain traits that don't necessarily have a lot to do with fitness. And, right. um, you know the ones that do have a lot to do with fitness tend to be the ones that aren't selected for flavor, and so I'm dubious you know i I am pretty dubious about getting really ambitious about making hybrid wines because there's a part of me i mean you probably say this even better than I can about me and where I could go, but there is a part of me that thinks you know eventually I want my farm to be you know five acres of Vitus vinifera and the rest of it should be either diversified farm or wild, you know, like we should rewild it. And I should get out of the commercial, you know, like selling of grapes to other winemakers and really sort of redesign the farm so that it, it functions more the way that I, that I want it to. Um, but having said that, I think there is something about that European wine grape that it's so culturally rich and it's so entrenched in our, in our imagination and in our, you know, the, the books and the poetry and all of the things that have kind of followed our, our cultures over the years. And it's cross-cultural and it's really, it is so captivating. But I think for me, it would probably like, if I stopped doing vitis vinifera, I probably stop doing wine. And I'm, t- I, you know, mm. I'll be the first person to say, I'm, I'm open to whatever future, you know, happens for me. But for now, at least I haven't found like the grapes that we grow in the, in the forested areas. They're fascinating to me because a, they almost always, look and taste like Riesling and B, they never have, they never have powdery mildew. Um, the red ones are always a little bit, you know, they're always a little foxy and <clears throat> none of them ferment, none of them are fermented in a way that I felt like I wanted to get out and, you know, start talking about in a really aggressive way. <clears throat> but it it is interesting to look at them just in terms of like, how many thousands of years would it take to or hundreds um, to find the one that is fit and delicious and ferments beautifully. And do we and, is that is that a is that worth chasing? I don't know. I don't. Um, I don't know.
0: I guess for me, it's maybe I'm blaming the wrong thing, but I I guess it just seems strange that you know that that first for time immemorial has sort of been the process where, you know, you, you look within the the natural landscape and you find whatever's growing there. And then you sort of, you know, breed it in, in the best way that you can, you know, just do your own sort of human version of natural selection over, you know, decades, hundreds of years, maybe millennia until you find, you know, mm-hmm. until something has established as the, as the favorite for whatever reason, for multiple reasons, usually for that. but And it's very tied to that area. And then we've decided, oh, that's it. That's the pinnacle for the whole world. Like, we're just going to (laughs) take it from Burgundy and transplant it around the world and say, we're never going to cultivate anything ever again. The whole process stops now for the rest of the world kind of thing. You know, I guess that's the weird thing to me. It seems like there must be more potential for other areas. Maybe it won't be Pinot Noir. Maybe it won't achieve what Pinot Noir does in Burgundy, or you know, anything that you could make that same analogy with. But maybe it will achieve something uniquely, just as good or close to as good for it for that area where it came from. You know, where it developed. I don't know. These are just my sort of big idea thoughts about it. But you're right. I, no I guess, one is. Your final question going. is really the damning one, which is like, is it worth, is, is that even worth the effort? Because at the end of the day, we have great wine that we like. And hey, you know, <laughs> um, why, why recreate the wheel? Maybe that is, What? Well, maybe that's what it's akin to. Well,
1: I said that, I, I, I asked that, I posed that question in a provocative way, because I think that what, you know, I think where you and I both sort of agree is that uh, not even sort of agree, wholeheartedly agree, is that the, alcohol is an acquired taste, right? We're not born <laughs> to like it. Um, and our bodies really struggle to, you know, make it anything less than a toxin. And so I think that the <laughs> fact that we, I mean, it is a perfect example of something that, you know, coffee would be similar, where we have, we have cultivated our tastes over these you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of years, because not so much because of anything that was innate in Vitus vinifera, but because of the way that we've spoken about it, the way that it's become part of our stories and our folklore and our poetry and our songs and our our culture at the table, our, our way of of sharing ideas and all of those things. It is so tied with that that there's something really beautiful and art and and really part of an artistic effort to me that that is that exists now in a almost purely cultural space and so like almost as a mm. library item it it is interesting and worth preserving but to your point I mean I don't want to put words in your mouth but this is where I would draw your point the fact that we've cultivated our appreciation for this thing it's and all of its iterations and all of the places the fact that you know Bordeaux is Bordeaux and Burgundy is Burgundy and Chianti and all of the all of the things that we have made ourselves believe not and and believe you know so like it becomes part of your fabric to appreciate but as an acquired appreciation and so I think that that can't that can't be an end point. It's not to say that that couldn't be the, you know, some other thing that we now start to cultivate an appreciation for, but the barriers to that right now, I probably don't need to point out to you because as anybody who's a reasonably young winemaker can say being a new brand out there. I mean, it's really, really difficult to set yourself apart in a way that actually captivates the attention and, turns the eye away from the norm, I guess, as right. anything other than an outlier, like as a as a one-time buy for sure, with a consistent right. following maybe for a while, but as a generational business, that's gonna take a coordinated effort, I think. I mean, a real like desire to say, as part of a an American wine tradition, <laughs> if we really wanted to make it an American wine tradition, would it not be wise to think about that being an american grape <laughs> and i think that that's very i <laughs> right. mean there's a very noble cause there i just don't know yeah. who's going to i don't know who's going to lead it <laughs> I mean, there're definitely, there definitely people doing really cool work but yes exactly yeah. that's the thing yeah. i mean it that's where this whole thing falls apart again because it's not by the people for the people if only people who can afford to lose incredible amounts of money changing the hearts and minds of the world um,
0: yeah. can do it. Now, having said that, the East Coast may be, yeah, you know, the, A- the East Coast is is unique that way. So I, I, I interviewed um, Carl Humpsch, who's the owner of Loving Cup Vineyards. It's the only org- certified organic winery in Virginia. And I think one of like three on the entire East Coast. So kind of.
1: God, that's so ballsy. Uh, I know. That. <laughs> he,
0: I mean, it's... I'm, oh yeah, and he and he says, I mean, he's like, look, it's hubris to think you can do what other people can, and he's like, there, it's the reality is, I may fail, but he's been at it for like twelve years, and he, I mean, he is merciless. He has basically trialed over fifty varietals in his or varieties in his vineyard, and when they don't work, he rips them out and plants new ones and keeps going. And he is not rich. Wow. Like he, he, they had a fraught. They had, no, they had a freeze like six hours below, like, I think 24 degrees on mother's day this year. Oof. So they lost everything. Oh, yeah. they, oh. he's like, we're not even, he's like, I think 80% is gone. And two years ago, they had over 100 inches of rain during the growing season and so they basically didn't they they lost something as well this is this is virginia weather
1: i was just yeah no i was just talking to um yeah a maryland farmer
0: yeah Yeah. oh yeah and and so the way that he has survived is 19 was perfect and they like had a huge crop they made like twice as much wine as they ever make. (laughs) And they're like going to be able to sell that this year. And hopefully next year there won't be another catastrophe, you know? Um, Although it does seem like more and more the catastrophes are bunching up closer and closer um, with, you know, climate change and and Mm -hmm. the weather weirding that's happening. But yeah, I mean, it was in talking to him that I just saw this potential, like, and on the East Coast, the consumer is a lot more interested in or open to be just by virtue of exposure, weird things that they've never heard of before, you know, because there's a new hybrid, every every location you go to, you, that's it's something else is growing, whether it's Pennsylvania or Virginia or New York or Vermont, there's some something new that somebody's trying out. And it's all different styles, sweet and dry and off dry. And and. You know, I don't know. I I look to them almost more, even though like we're the West Coast is the the wine, you know, producing capital of, you know, America. It's I think the East Coast might be where the future is in terms of that American grape, like the one that becomes the Pinot Noir for Burgundy for America kind of thing.
1: Um, well, different. and they've, I mean, it's by, yeah, it's by necessity, right? I mean, they, right, they, right. I, I think, you know, obviously there's a, a real creative spirit, um, especially in the gentleman that you reference, who I'm going to send a card to <laughs> in, immediately. <laughs> um, but yeah. I think, I mean, so like when you are in those extreme places, I mean, if you want to grow something you can ferment, you need to work with something that's not going to die every single year, certainly. Um, and, you know, just just looking at the disease pressure that, you know, vitus vinifera would have in that kind of humidity and the, you know, just the the growing season that they experience there, um, yeah. I think ne- necessity can often drive ingenuity and then change taste just because if the local population does support it and it takes hold, it's, you know that's how things change and yeah it also could be a huge part of changing the conversation about you know ecological infrastructure to protect against some of those big events because i think that's you know at once we need to we need to have crops and cultivars that have a capacity to adapt to the way the climate is going to change going forward but we also don't have to accept that the amount of land conversion that has gotten us to where our climate is in such a bad way that we couldn't reconvert <laughs> in other words we couldn't turn this ship around and start rebuilding the the networks of plant communities and ecological communities that are the first line of defense against those massive events that happen and they they drain things faster they interrupt massive winds and all of those things but that's that's part of that sort of land plant communication strategy that needs to be part of landscape level change but i think it's a it's an interesting entryway into that conversation again and wine is a good good and powerful vector for that
0: yeah um, you, you, I'm guessing have to use sulfur or stylet oil or something. What do you use on, on your vines to prevent? For mildew the, yeah. Botrytis? Yeah.
1: So, you know, for us, it's really powdery mildew. Botrytis is less of a problem. I mean, it's just been, you know, pretty much, much drier in recent years. Botrytis is like, I'd say like a, a five year, problem for us um, so yeah sulfur historically has been the backbone of organic spray programs i don't mm-hmm. use oils I've, i haven't ever really liked the result of using oils i do think that they're pretty effective especially early season at um prevention but i don't like what they do to the arthropod um,
0: communities. I mean,
1: it's, it's just really tough on beneficials. And so we don't, we don't use any oils uh, and we try to use as little sulfur as possible. I have to say that spray technology um, has not come as far as I wish that it had, because we've, we just this year rebuilt a <laughs> we we rebuilt one of the first electrostatic sprayers on the west coast. It's like from 1998, um, and it's um, you know electrostatic technology. It's used in a lot of orchards and stuff. But for a hot second, it was maybe gonna stick in in vineyards. But I think because a lot of the first models were tested in California. Um, where it was really windy and really hot and really dry, the grounding effect was less. And then also the wind, because you're not spraying as much material, the wind made it hard for, you know, the real results to be seen. But that technology has really changed the game for me in terms of not having to use as much sulfur. So this year, which has been one of the higher pressure years we've had in a long time, last year was another really high pressure year where, Organic growers would easily, you know, sail right past 50 pounds per acre of total sulfur use and spray sulfur well past bloom just to have adequate control. And, you know, some number of like 16, 17 sprays in the growing season, which is just
0: wow.
1: unacceptable, yeah. right? I mean, it, yeah. it's such a it's a, the hugest elephant you could possibly put in a room. So we've gotten to where, you know, with this rebuilt super jangy has to be basically put back together after every spray, but the the technology has allowed us to spray, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 gallons per acre um, of total material. So that's water use. And that minimizes the amount of chemical because the, the adhesion is so great. So this year, you know, we're going to spray, like, I think last time I checked, we were almost at 15 pounds per acre of sulfur for the year. And we do, so we, we will use, um, there's a new product out that is a a sweet lupin oil derivative that I trialed this year and I really, really liked it. It's, it's ridiculously expensive, but I also have found, um, that like the, the, the horn silica spray, um, you know, from biodynamics, because we, you know, I sort of dip my toe occasionally in the preps. And I did a bunch of biodynamic trials where we did everything exactly by the book. And it's not that I didn't, I, the philosophy doesn't, I, I take no issue with it. But in terms of like some of the things that, some of the other things that we've done experimentally, like with the tea preparations that we do, um, have just been much more interesting to me in terms of the result, um, in the vineyard and in the wines. So, but, but what I will say is that the horn silica and the equisetum I find to be, if you time them well can really extend your, your, your fungicide intervals, if you're organic, but you have to really, you really have to track it and pay attention because you, you will only learn what works when something doesn't work. So,
0: so it, <laughs> yes. takes, it, it
1: takes being pretty meticulous about keeping records and knowing what the weather was like during that time and knowing how close you were to bloom and how close you were to bunch closure. But it's, you know, you know, over the last 12 or so years, we've really kind of dialed in where, where the, where the true pressure points are like when an epidemic is going to become something really difficult to control where did you lose control because it was it's almost always farther back than you think it was and you like missed a critical spray because you you were like oh i'm so clean i'm just going to i'm just going to stretch this window a little bit farther and it's the early season <laughs> stuff that really matters so we've yeah. Um, yeah
0: yeah i used to think that um organic viticulture meant you didn't have to do anything and then i had to rip out yeah try that and replant yeah it it is not a it is not a a,
1: it's not a cultivar that does well under benign neglect (laughs)
0: um here's a here's a big question for you that i just wanted to get your thoughts about um what what do you think needs to change about the way the wine world has defined great wine to have a, to make it a better definition?
1: Boy, that's a great question. I guess I would have to kind of turn it back around a little bit and, and say, how do you think it's defined now?
0: Mm. I Think, I guess my' <laughs> it's obviously kind of a leading question but I think it's defined in in a way that is limited to sensory perception to just to how it tastes in the glass so we can blind taste it and score it on a 100 point score and say 100 points it's great you know this is a, a, a wine for the ages and I, I know that simply by sticking my nose in it and swirling it in my mouth and swallowing it and I feel like, it's, there's no context to that, and so here you go, I'm giving you my opinion, I asked for yours, so, but anyway, I'll shut up, but that's, that's how I think it is currently defined.
1: That's a, okay, so that's fair, I just wanted to make sure that we were sort of coming, coming at it from the same
0: I think it is, I mean, do you disagree, do you think it's, do you think there's a broader discussion being had about, I guess I, I, I guess it's, maybe we're talking about, there, there is more diversification in wine press and wine culture now I guess I guess it up until recently I'd say in the last decade though it that was sort of the the monoculture of wine was that approach to it um,
1: yeah I mean you, I think that the sort of the, the hedonism driven um, you know the this the sweetness the alcohol the mega purple and all the you know the reverse engineering right. of 96 points, that um that really followed the trend of the american palate really which yeah. was for it can't possibly be sweet enough there can't possibly be enough alcohol in it um and the more there is the more the more i like it but i want to talk about it like it's dry and i <laughs> and i want to talk about it <laughs> like it's sustainable. um and so for sure i think that when when we talk about greatness of any of any endeavor, the process has to be taken into account. It has to be spoken about like this is the the real hollowed ground is in the process. it's not in the um, the one experience that you maybe have that's informed by how you feel that day and you know how many cups of coffee you had or whatever but that I think to you know to what you just said context means a lot and that whole I mean the wine scoring thing to me is I mean I don't have problems with like criticism for you know be it literary or artistic or you know wine criticism or whatever i mean i think it's interesting i think it creates a platform for people to launch from when they want to talk about how they feel about a particular wine or want to buy something and they've never tried it before um and i do think you know you're right it has gotten much more diverse in terms of this, this the media that people can consume now it's not just one one particular set of tastes that's being represented. But I also think that there's a really a really critical moment right now for talking about what what is appropriate. <laughs> what is what is appropriate when it comes to using the land to produce something that maybe shouldn't be mass marketed right i mean i i this is controversial i know i'm going to get into really like uncomfortable territory but when something gets written about in a critical way generally speaking it is a luxury it is a luxury good it's a piece of art it's a um it's a luxury car it's a blah 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 i don't i don't you know whatever it is um and you know that i think then necessarily needs to take into account design intent artistry and then also the the process in which with an agricultural beverage that heart of that thing is where it came from and so i think that the at the end of the day in, in reality, I don't think that it means very much to farm beautifully and then make something that unequivocally tastes bad. (laughs) And I don't, I mean, I think that there's, there's probably not very many options of that. I mean, I haven't really thought about it because my, my, my gut tells me that if it is tended beautifully, unless, unless a terrible mistake was made um, it should, it should at least be good. Right. But the, there right. should be an appreciation built into our criticism for the process involved, and not just the cherry and tobacco and um you know the right. spice notes and the 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 way that we you know just recycle words to talk about wines it, it's it's really they're neat. I, I, yeah. I'm I, going to say, I'm going to say it. I'm going to just go ahead and say it. I don't think we need as much wine in the world as there currently is. And a lot of it could go <laughs> away and nobody would notice. And so if we really wanted to use the opportunity of writing about wine, of talking about wine to focus on the great work that's being done, a lot of things would change just as a result of that different way of talking about it. I mean, even t- like, yeah, to get back to our previous conversation about where it, what, what variety it comes from, and you know what part of the world it comes from. So, yeah, I think it's a really, I think it's a really good question, um, and it is, uh, it's a well, loaded one.
0: <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll, help you dig your hole even deeper. Um, <laughs> as, as someone who's like myself, and I, you know, I'm sure you are on a mission to promote these values. Um, I feel like, given the economic realities, that I it's kind of like I should be trying to make a delicious table wine that the average person can, can afford and buy to, re- to buy regularly that was also made with these values. But do you think that we can and even should make like a $10 dollar wine? that is a delicious example of regenerative viticulture or, or should, you know, I just switch to something besides wine to promote those values.
1: No, I think, I mean, I, okay, great, great question. And I'm a good person and my wines are not inexpensive. And I, I have lots of like, you know, gut problems because of that. And this is where, when we were just talking about how the whole system needs to change in order for you to really, pro- I mean, to, to really be able to produce a, a beautiful table wine from regeneratively farmed because it's got to really be regeneratively farmed. Right. And we right. were just talking about what it takes to farm regeneratively and how, if you, if you aren't a vested wealth, you know, like if you don't own your land, if you're in a partnership with the bank or I don't know where your money comes from. But the burden of on top of that farming experimentally in a region where the farming that goes on around you makes it harder to farm benignly, you know, so like you're up against, a, you know, a greater set of hurdles just based on being either in a monoculture or surrounded by conventional farming that's constantly like dusting you with whatever whatever's coming across the fence line right and that really makes it a classist beverage a classist system that if unless we can make it so that the average grower who wants to farm benignly is supported to the level that it is the it is the least expensive way to farm your inputs actually do go down your you know the the tractor passes go down all of those things need to be in line in order to really produce a a truly you know ten dollar and and then I think we also need to talk about like it, at that point we should be we should be putting it in kegs. We should not be putting it in glass bottles and we should not be shipping it across right. the world. We should be serving it to our local communities and they should be able to enjoy vast quantities of it. it should be the only thing that they drink. One of the things <laughs> I've always loved about California is how loyal California, I mean, at least in Southern California, this is not true in the Bay, but Southern California buys California wine. When I go down there and it's like it's like pushing a boulder up a hill to sell Oregon wine, it's, <laughs> it makes me happy for you guys because it's really, you guys could be putting a lot of stuff in kegs and growlers and whatever, but again, yeah. the, the culture that we expect around wine and the preciousness that we attach to it, that part would have to kind of fade away or at least would have to be in a very specific category in order for, I think, a, a truly regeneratively farmed wine to be able to be that inexpensive.
0: Are, are you telling me you guys uh, make wine in Oregon?
1: <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't Oregon just in Northern
0: California? <laughs> um, well, this leads, what you said with that really leads a, into a what I'll just make my final question so I don't keep you forever, if that's okay. Do you have time for another question? You betcha. And I feel like it's important. I feel like you have some thoughts about this that are important to get out there. Um, and that's that I, I see a class structure within the wine industry where specifically about vineyard workers and vineyard workers basically being serfs uh, or anonymous at, you know, at best. Um, where winemakers become celebrities and there's this big divide between, you know, if you're in the cellar versus the vineyard, um, at its worst, almost racism. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, uh, you know, at least classist. And and I would venture to bet that the the percentage of vineyard workers who have never tasted the wine made from the vineyards that they care for is huge. And, you know, I feel like there are so many... Beneficial things that would come from bridging that that chasm. Uh, one of which might be better agricultural practices, because if you have to actually work in those fields versus send somebody who you think of as a lesser than to go work in those fields, you might think twice about what you're spraying in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I just feel like the ways that I guess the the question that I would like to get at would be. What ways can we and in what ways can the humans who we rely on to care for our vineyards be better integrated, recognized and honored in the wine world?
1: Such a, such an important question. I, I mean, honestly, we need to, we need to put them out there. I mean, I, I think that that's, it's critical. I mean, they need to make wine. They need to be, part of the conversation they need to be telling the stories of the vineyards that they care for they need to be they need to be in tastings. they need to be at the table it's it is so offensive that (laughs) that that's not i mean i i don't because i'm not saying this to you but it is so offensive that that's not super obvious um because i think they are invisible no, hear, yeah, no. because we make them invisible. We, you know, and, and we also allow ourselves to think that they want to be invisible. I think sometimes I think that there's, you know, there's enough of a cultural barrier most of the time. Um, it be either because you know, if you don't, if you're not around those people all the time, then there's always this sort of like shyness about, you know, putting yourself out there and um maybe inviting the people who work in the field to either come and have lunch in the winery or I mean it's just I don't think it's all I I certainly don't think it's overtly intentional most of the time but sure when sure, we have yeah. these black tie dinners and there's only white people in the room and nobody's talking about anything except how cool is that winemaker or how amazing is this wine that that person made that that's just perpetuating this like oh this really sort of feudalist way that we use land and use people on land and and never really connect with Anything We don't deeply connect with anything or anybody. And the people that I've, that work in my vineyard, you know, I've worked with them when I was, you know, waist high on them. You know, they they're the same crew that I worked with on my family's farm. And just, it felt like, so it would be like ignoring the fact that my mom raised me. <laughs> you know like dismissing my mother at a at a wine dinner <laughs> to not include them in everything that i say about the work that we do because they didn't i mean they never farmed the way that i farm until we started hopewell and it was a real i mean it was a real learning curve for all of us together and ta- and talking about it with language barriers and and me trying to learn enough technical spanish to be able to talk about microorganisms and All of that stuff, but the the depth of creativity that is locked up inside people who use their hands every day and see the same plants. I mean, it's it's like there is such a wealth of experience and appreciation, and they they're I mean they're great tasters, Um, they're great companions, and I think they would only make the wine story richer. And that's why I just think you know every time I go to a wine dinner now, I'm just like. Appalled, um, and I—it's not like I want to just be one of those people who throws Molotov cocktails into everybody's good time, but <laughs> it is—it is one of it is one of those things where I think until we start making some really uncomfortable situations, it's never going to get comfortable. Like we're just—we're never going to get there. We can we can Instagram all the black screens and all the things that we want to do. Mm-hmm. to feel a little bit better but putting putting those people in front of us like in front they lead that's that's where it really starts to change
0: have have you do you i've i've seen a couple uh, things that i thought were really good steps in the right direction like uh, sort of like multi winery winery partnerships to, to be able to provide permanent jobs and benefits for vineyard workers instead of just having these sort of seasonal migrant, the, that idea, the, you know, that idea of just temporary workers. Um, I've seen things where people do, you know, I, I like the idea of cross-training, you know, mm-hmm. vineyard and cellar, you know, mm-hmm. get, get people who are in the vineyard into the cellar and in the cellar out into the vineyard and, and make, it, make it one staff instead of two separate staffs. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know anything else that any practical things that you've seen or ideas that you've seen that were are steps in the right direction.
1: Well, for sure. I mean, for sure, the model of Vigneron is the, is the model that is the most egalitarian where if you, if you think you're good enough to make wine, grow the, grow the fruit first. Right. I mean, not that everybody can do that. And I, I know that that's a very bold statement, but I think that if you, if you aren't willing to go out and work in the field, then you probably don't know enough about the grapes. And that's, that's about willingness. It's not about knowledge. It's just about what you think your job is, because there's, there's a model where the knowledge that it takes to really shepherd something into an art form requires an intimacy that can't just start at the winery door. And we're stepping over a, the, the, like the most critical piece of information that's all locked up in the hands of these people that do all the work in the vineyard. And then they're left okay. out of the winery. And so the for sure the you know, the bringing in to the cellar because the flow of work is, perfectly aligned for that you know when harvest is over the wine needs to be made those people should not just get laid off they should go work in the winery and then also not just clean stuff (laughs) I mean they should be they should be sitting down at the tasting table they should be sitting down at the blending table it's a it's a very I think anybody who's worked in a cellar and, you know, kind of taught people in a cellar can value what it means. And the same is true in the vineyard. When you teach someone something, you learn it better yourself. And when you repeatedly do that, you do, I mean, you just, that there's mastery and it's never mastery, but there's, you always get better when you're teaching. And so I think yeah. that that's, I mean, the, the idea that we're not just, using people but that we're training and shoring up and elevating and always assuming that we're not this we're not the last step in the road for this person that they that they have maybe something truly great in front of them maybe their own wine brand maybe they'll become a teacher may, maybe they'll start their own management company or whatever but I think that's um, the opportunity has to be put, in front of them much, much more often. And I think that being in the winery more um, does make for better viticulture. It makes for better winemaking. I think it's all that just the fact that so many of them never, never have tasted a wine that came from the work that they've done is so, wow.
0: I mean, it, it seems yeah. like that's the most obvious thing to improve quality. Like yeah. if you're not invested in the end product, how can you care as much? You know, how right. can you do your best work? I, I don't know. Just for practical reasons, it seems like <laughs> if you take away all the other reasons, um, if you were just a purely a mercenary and wanted to you know, make better wine, it seems obvious that that would be one step in the direction of quality that you could take.
1: I mean, um, it is the lowest hanging fruit
0: <laughs> it really is yeah. I mean if
1: you want somebody to appreciate what your expectations are in the winery when you when you are trying to make something the wine that's in your heart, the only way to imbue that in another person is to bring them into your process and say yeah. and have them really live it with you, like gut it out on the sorting table, you know with the minutia of like berry sorting it is that changes the way that you see the vibe. I mean, it totally does and vice versa. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's huge.
0: Mimi, um, do you want to put anything out there in terms of, uh, you know, your website or any resources that you would like to promote or anything like that?
1: Well, that's very nice of you to ask. I mean, we can, you know, are you writing?
0: We- I I wish more work on a farmer, but I think you should write a book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's very, that's very kind of you to say, um, currently, no, I don't know when I, but I do write a lot and I'm about to, um, there's, you know, my blog posts are always like longer than a blog post has any right being. (laughs) And so we're trying to think of new platforms for, when people really want to get super technical and weird about some of these concepts and ideas, uh, where they can, you know, go to read a whole lot more. Um, so I have been writing a lot more. It's not, I'm definitely not in a position to write a book right now, but, um, yeah, the website is Hopewell Wine. There is another Hopewell Winery. So don't search for Hopewell Winery unless you want to meet those people. They're, I'm sure they're very lovely. We've never met in person, but it's, I believe it's in Virginia. (laughs) Um, and I think mostly though, I encourage everyone to seek out more people like you, more people who are wanting to have more important conversations about wine than just, you know, whatever's swirling in the glass, which is really entertaining. And I do enjoy doing that. But I think that right now we need to, We need to scale up the way that we're talking about ag, about food production, about human beings working. And I just really, I appreciate what you're doing. And I I think um, it it was a real honor to talk to you today.
0: That's very kind. Thank you. It was a real honor to talk to you as well. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I hope we can do this again soon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I hope we can.